0: Civil service is a challenge simply because a fire or police chief makes the decision, but you usually have an independent third-party hearing examiner deciding whether or not they agreed with what that chief did. So you've got someone else grading your homework, right? And um, so that's a challenge because you have to to convince uh, that person that the firing was justified. um, And... But another aspect of it, too, is sometimes you have city ordinances and city policies that give uh, appeal rights uh, to either the city manager or the city council.
1: Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, employees, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Over 16 million people in the U.S. work for state and local governments. That's 6% of the U.S. population. But because of the different rules from the Constitution all, all the way down to city ordinances, managing public sector employees can be very different than managing private sector employees. My guest today is attorney Julia Gannaway, a partner in the law firm of Ross Gannaway. Julia represents both public and private employers across Texas and is the perfect guest to explain the differences between public and private sector HR. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Julia.
0: Thank you, Mike. Good morning to you too.
1: So, not, I know tons of employment law attorneys, but most of them really don't do both public sector and private sector. How did you get into all this public sector work that you do?
0: Well, I started out by working for a public entity when I worked for uh, the city of Odessa and then the city of Bryan, is uh, when I began to learn the different contours and the different approaches. While everything applies, you know, while all the federal law applies to all of the employees, there are also special laws that apply to Texas government employers.
1: So you came out of law school straight into working for municipalities?
0: Well, actually, when I first got out of law school, I worked uh, for a plaintiff's personal injury medical malform, and then I worked for the Department of Agriculture for Rick Perry. And then, um, so when I was doing that, I did a lot of administrative law. Then I uh, moved out to Odessa to work with uh, the city of Odessa, and that's when I was a city prosecutor there. And that's where I really began to work a lot with uh, police departments because all of my prosecutions were in municipal court can take the girl out of municipal court, but she can't take the municipal court out of the girl. And you learn all of those important laws and all. Then I got to step up and learn about employment and police and internal affairs investigations and the special roles and obligations of the police departments, then transition to the city of Bryan as well. So.
1: Interesting. So you did, you did administrative government work and then you went to be a prosecutor and uh, so you're the you're the one I hated because, you know, you would you would prosecute <laughs> me for those traffic tickets. And uh, and I was always innocent. And and then you went in, went into uh, the HR side of the public sector. That's that's a yeah. journey.
0: Yeah. And so what happened is when I moved to Brian, I, I learned, you know, zoning and all those painful land use things. But then also got to work with HR and risk management. So it was also risk factors, risk management, HR then police and fire, because the city of Bryan was civil service. And so that's how I learned civil service, which is not all cities have civil service, only some folks do.
1: Yeah, we got to get into that, because every time I, we have a, a number of municipal clients, and they, whenever they say, oh, yeah, well, we're civil service this or that, I'm like, I I just nod and act like yeah. I'm smart and say, oh, of course you are. But uh, And if I have a question, I'll call you. Ask us, yeah. So let's let's talk about you know you've 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 seen both sides of uh you know public and private and uh we've shared the stage at conferences and all of that so but what are the big differences uh between being a private sector employer versus uh working for the government
0: well working for the government you uh have to comply, of course, with first and foremost, the Constitution. It is it is those constitutional requirements and due process uh, that apply to the employee-employer relationship that you do not have to worry about with a private sector.
1: So basically, because government employees are also citizens, the what the government can do to to an employee or about an employee is different because they're citizens than what a private sector uh, employer who doesn't have any constitutional responsibilities their employees necessarily has to worry about?
0: Yeah, like like for example, uh, the First Amendment. Um, We got this a lot in the heated political season. Of course, that's not in our rear view, but uh, it was, I've got a First Amendment right to say this and say that, and they're in the private sector. It's like the First Amendment didn't apply to the private sectors. They can fire you for whatever reason, so long as it's not an illegal one. Now, when you've got the public sector, you you have a relationship of employer to employee, which is different than a citizen right. It's a highly fact-intensive case. If, if it is an employee that is commenting about the employer's matter of public concern, you can get sued like, like that. That's very important. Also, searches and seizures, uh, the Fourth Amendment. For example, drug testing. This happens a lot private sector. You can drug test. And public sector, you have to fall within a either uh, random suspicionless uh, ability, which is safety-sensitive type drug tests, or reasonable suspicion, or post-accident. So you are more prohibited in scratch all of that. With a drug test, it is much more restrictive in a public sector environment, and you have to make sure and comply with the Fourth Amendment before you engage in a drug test because that is a search.
1: And that's a conversation that comes a lot up with a lot with our municipal clients who want to do drug testing. Uh, uh, You know, the smaller the municipality, uh, the more questions I get. But in most cases, as I understand it, a municipality or a local government can't do pre-employment drug testing unless we're dealing with a safety sensitive position. So you're talking about fire, police, things like that. Is that right?
0: That's correct. Um, Matters that would someone who have a serious risk of danger, danger, illness. Um, And you are exactly correct. The smaller the municipality, you have a lot of uh, council members and in different folks that say, you know, well, I don't want anybody to be on drugs. So if they drive a car, they should have a drug test. So, well, that's not a safety sensitive one. Um, My dad used to be the mayor of a very small town out in West Texas. And I was telling him, hey, you know, I'm doing this, this, this presentation on drug testing. And dad, you can't drug test this particular position. And he was like, The hell I can't. And that's what you get from a lot of your uh, elected officials. They want to do tests. They say, well, they're financial people. They could be subject to blackmail. It's like, yeah, that's not really what it is. And you encourage, it's very fact intensive. And I encourage everyone to look at a risk analysis before you just haul off and blanket test folks.
1: But you can do post-accident testing, uh, things like that, that you would normally do in the private sector.
0: Yeah, post accident, of course, and uh, certainly for workers' comp. You know okay. that happens yeah. up a lot, right? You, you know, well, hey, were they? What were they on when this accident happened? That impacts your rates, as well as reasonable suspicion, and that's that's in the public sector. But that's what that's basically what you see. Someone that, right. if they're drooling on themselves or bumping into walls, maybe you might, you know, some some specific specific articulable contemporaneous observations, and then that will. Um, that enables you to do it, but you do have to be able to explain why you you have to justify why you're doing the search.
1: So, uh, that's what other federal laws. I mean, you know, as employers, we're we're governed by a whole mess of uh, you know three letter a you know three letter agencies. So, uh, what about, or you know, a lot of them are four letter. Yeah, um, but, say four letter. <laughs> yeah, but what about those things? Uh, you know, OSHA and LRB. Which ones? you know, what kind of considerations do public sector employers have, uh, or not have that maybe a private sector employer does or doesn't have?
0: Well, when we were talking about, um, asking me to come on your podcast, I did kind of a little list, you know, public and private, if you will. So for example, the Fair Labor Standards Act, minimum wage, overtime, that applies to both. The public sector has some, uh, expanded overtime rules, uh, all of those things, though, are basically all public and private. Same thing. The FMLA is applies to every one of 50 or more employees. Um, ADA, same standard. The National Labor Relations Board, which was, you know, very active during President Obama, during the, uh, pre- the President Trump, it, the executive had a different approach, but now President Biden is coming back with it. The beautiful thing for being in a public sector is you don't have to learn about that NLRB stuff or um, all of that national labor relations unions Mm -hmm. that you don't have to learn about Um, public sector. For public sector in Texas, the only people that can join a union are public safety. And that's under 174 of the Texas local government code for public sector employees. They're very anti-union, if you will. In texas as for public sector employers um let me see osha you asked about osha osha does not apply to the public sector it applies wow. to private sector the public sector has its own rules about safety but osha can't it's a federal agency right so it can't step into the political sovereignty if you will of a state or its political subdivision hmm. so far um, uh, Title VII, of course, applies to both. And then Texas Labor Code, of course, applies to both. And those are the employment laws. Um, and I know that you talked with Julie Ross about Texas making a new sexual harassment codification. So that that is something that is different on the te- Texas state uh, relation. But another, uh, another thing that's important is ERISA. ERISA doesn't apply in public sector. It does in the private sector. And lastly... A, an interesting challenge for public sector are both the Open Meetings Act and the Open Records Act, because private sector, you know, your employment records, your personnel files are confidential, and there's no such uh, applicability in the public sector. Most everything is presumed public unless there's specific exceptions apply. So you really do have to do a lot of your personnel decisions out in the public.
1: Or, or at least uh, don't put them in writing.
0: Well, but remember, um, we all know from our fun times that we've had with the DOL, the EOC, and others. If it's not in writing, it didn't happen.
1: So but you still you, tell you, So you tell your clients write it down. But maybe you're double deli- some of the deliberations. Or more verbal than than maybe you would record, or maybe I, I I would tell a private employer that I guess though the same thing. Don't put stupid stuff down in writing, uh, and you know <laughs> don't create the exhibit for the other party. So
0: well, and remember what though you know I tell people when we're looking at different issues and we're analyzing an ADA issue or a different thing like that. You know, although te- employers in Texas have an you know the at will expectation meaning you can fire them for any reason so long as it's not an illegal reason. then you don't have to have a cause to fire somebody uh, unless your uh, your policies allow it or if a particular political organization requires it. But just even though you may not have to have a cause, you always need to have a reason to take Hmm. an employment action against someone. Um, A jury is going to mislike intensely you just saying, oh, I just didn't like them. They're going to say in their minds they're going to substitute. Uh, an illegal reason for that because you have a pretext. So I tell my folks, I'm like, guys, gals, you have reasons for doing what you're doing. Put it in paper. Make sure the employee knows reason, and more importantly, an employee's prospective attorney would see what you did as well, so that your actions were reasonable basis. And and same as in private sector, public sector, people retire, they leave, and the things that are in writing related to that are the record of how you treated that person in that supplies the reasons and the details of what happened because people are going to forget. You're going to move on. You, although even you think this particular personnel issue, you will never ever forget it. You will. (laughs) And you will forget the details. So make sure there is a record for what you did.
1: Interesting. The, uh, you know, on that open record stuff, you know, we do a ton of open record requests for our clients. And we had a deal a few years ago where one of our clients was going to hire somebody who had worked for a very small municipality. And just you know, for our more risk-averse clients, if it's a if if the employee was anybody of significance at a previous employer that was a municipality or a local government, we put in a public information request for their file just to see what's in there, and we got a call back on. and And it's been illustrative many times, but we got a call back uh, from from this municipality saying, "Yeah, we we've got it, and it's going to be." Like $900. And I said, What? And they're like, Yeah, it's 50 cents a page or something. Uh, or even, you know, maybe it's less than that, even. And it was just, yeah, we've got about, it's going to be about three or three bankers' boxes full of stuff. And I was like, Sounds like I probably need that. <laughs> and yeah. so I got the, the client, the client went for it. And sure enough, this guy had been a police officer and uh, at a, in a small municipality. And they basically sent me three banker boxes full of, racist pornographic uh, material they pulled off his computer in his, in his in his squad car and off his desk. I mean comments about citizens, uh, I mean all kinds of just really ugly stuff and uh, that was illustrative enough that my client said, yeah this is not a good fit for our organization And so I'm always telling clients, hey you know you can't get this in the public sector uh, or in the private sector but in the public sector, it's, it's not a bad investment. Usually it's not nearly that much. You know, usually it's, you know, the, the you know, $125, $150, including our fee. So it's not that, you know, just, it's just patience waiting for them to process the, the open record request. But now, but there is a thing about their investigations, right? Um, when you're doing an employee investigation in the public sector, are there times where that's not available?
0: Yes, there are. Um normally, um normally back normally investigations are dis- are discoverable or subject to the Open Records Act. The, um, and a lot of people are, are misunderstanding and think that well, you know, if it's an ongoing administrative investigation, it's not open, but it, it is it's subject to the Open Records Act. If, if it's relating to a criminal investigation, it is not, it's subject to a permissive exception under the Open Records Act. Uh, and if it is an attorney conducting it, it is also can be uh, protected under the attorney-client privilege. Also for police and fire with cities that have civil service, if it is a pending internal affairs investigation, it, for when civil service it is confidential under law, um, unless or until it results in formal discipline, i.e., days off, uh, demotions, those kinds of things. So. That um, that is still the law even after this last session. But what is interesting too, something that that smaller cities, well, different cities size. A lot of the smaller ones though don't don't comply with the Records Retention Act, and that's another thing for public sector. That that you know you have the private sector laws about records retention. You know that Title Seven, all those things. How long do you have to keep them? But the pro, the public sector has a separate a batch of laws under the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Now who would have ever thought to look under there? Don't even get that that's that's for some stories over drinks. But uh, it's a it's a Records Retention Act and it talks about how government agencies, political subdivisions in the state of Texas, how long they have to keep certain types of records. And so they have like one schedule for regular employees, one for public sector, police and fire and EMS, and whichever one's longer has to apply. So before you just get shred happy with anything, um, you have to check those, too. That's why, you know, when you're talking about that other, that other municipality client with a police officer, they, they had everything because they m- might have just kept it. Um, but there's also that law to come up. But I tell everyone all the time for public sector, do the open records requests and ask for all employment records or ask. Don't ask for just the personnel file. Ask for all employment records because that's two different things. If you don't ask, you don't get under the Public Information Act, So,
1: And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, Visit GoodMorningHR.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 29 and enter the keyword Gannaway. That's G-A-N-N-A-W-A-Y. On February 10th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Legal and Practical Background Check Considerations. We'll cover the Fair Credit Reporting Act and practical ways employers can verify their applicant's claims while avoiding the most common causes of background check litigation. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after February 10th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Julia Ganaway. Well, you mentioned those two words against civil service. What does that even mean?
0: Well, for uh, it's for police and fire in Texas. Uh, for sit, for populations with greater than ten thousand, these citizens can vote in civil service, and what that does is for police and fire, they can uh, they it controls hiring, firing, promotions and other job related things and so it kind of takes it provides a lot of substantive and procedural due process the the intent of that law is to remove political influence from hiring decisions and to have professional public safety uh, free uh for for permanent public employment tenure and believe me sometimes that's a challenge because may not need to be permanent employment tenure some of these folks but it was enacted uh the bostick brothers fort worth firefighters are the ones who carried the water in the legislature for that for the fire 1947 is when civil service was first enacted and that gave employees protections also for work-related injuries and illnesses before workers comp became applicable to cities so it did some important things to protect uh individuals because it used to be a good old boy system you know if you're friends with the mayor you got a job and if you weren't you, you didn't. Um, so it it about seventy five to eighty cities around Texas have adopted it. Um, but it it does take an affirmative vote.
1: So then, like civil service, um, you talked about how it involves how they select employees. What's what are some ways that uh, so, you know being a civil service city affects how you select your employees?
0: For one, the the biggest one right now is the age requirements. You cannot, uh, for fire, you cannot be thirty six or older, and police, you can't be older than forty five, and be an entry level can't be appointed to an entry level position. And so there's been um, some folks who have applicants who are older than those ages, and they're like, and they've said that's not fair, that's illegal. But under the Age with Discrimination Employment Act, if it's deemed a bona fide occupational qualification, i.e. age is related to your ability to do the job. You can have that requirement. So that that age restriction has been in place and continues to be in place and at times has caused difficulties in hiring those folks, especially since the early 2000s and we've been in war. A lot of folks that are in the military are also your public safety folks. So Obviously, the military service is is going to be important and oppress you know probably take a higher level of importance than sometimes your civilian job duties and so that that age that age restriction has been uh, problematic.
1: So, I mean, I don't think in a private sector though, ADEA would accept uh, that even if you needed to be physically fit to do a job that, ADA, you know, you couldn't get away with that under Age Discrimination uh, and Employment Act in the no. private sector, but has it ever been challenged I mean, under, does ADA ap- apply to uh, public sector employees and- uh,
0: ADEA does? Yeah, the Age yeah. Discrimination Employment Act, it also applies too, so yeah. So the reason why it is, is it's deemed a bona fide, uh, it's, it's expressly, if, if something is a BFOQ, bona fide mm-hmm. occupational qualification, then it's like in a defense to it. Right. And so, um, for there's not been, um, a reported case where someone has challenged the Texas civil service act on that age restriction. Also for Texas firefighters with the cities that have pensions, they also have a hiring restriction too at 35. And, um, uh, i if, if I were to guess, I've not seen a court that so states or so notes. But, you know, back in the old days, if you will, people's knees were out, their shoulders were out. And at age 65, to get a full pension benefit, you'd have to start at 35 to get your whole 30 mm-hmm. years in, if you will. And they ha- and they used to have, mm-hmm. remember, too, uh, mandatory retirement ages for civil service at 65. Oh. Another thing, is that sorry I snapped my fingers? Um, no, the um, I just get so excited and peppy. Um, no, but a lot of political subdivisions in Texas don't contribute to Social Security. So really? you know, yeah, they that's an exception to the statute if if the political subdivision opts for that. So um, Arlington, they they don't pay into Social Security. The cities, thankfully, I've worked for have, but some cities that have pensions for fire or police. for both um and for all employees they some of those don't have social security participate it's not mandatory for them to participate they they have an exception under that law so
1: and you hear all the time that it's really hard to fire a public sector employee is that a civil service issue or is that some other issue that's out there
0: well, it can be a host of many issues. Civil service is a challenge simply because a fire or police chief makes the decision, but you usually have an independent third-party hearing examiner deciding or, whether or not they agreed with what that chief did. So you've got someone else grading your homework, right? And um, so that's a challenge because you have to to convince uh, that person that the firing was justified. I, um, and but another aspect of it, too, is sometimes you have city ordinances and city policies that give uh, appeal rights uh, to either the city manager or to the city council. But um, those, you know, usually the people who are being terminated, that's that's not a surprise to the decision maker, if you will. You know what I mean? Most cities, they're they're chief executive as the city manager, not the mayor. But the cities that have mayor as the chief executive officer, when you have more politics involved, sometimes that's a struggle or a challenge when firing individuals too, because of the political component that, that sometimes raises its, its
1: head. But in the civil service arena, then if I'm an employee and I get fired for whatever, you know, you know let's say something performance related, I have an automatic appeal to uh, some, a third-party arbitrator of some sort? Is
0: Well, like not not an automatic appeal. Um, what's interesting about civil service as well is it's limited to acts. You cannot suspend someone for an act that occurred more than 180 days from the date of when you took the action to when you take the suspension. Now, Um, I think Fort Worth, for example, Fort Worth PD, I think they are at meet and confer and the fire is collective bargaining. So those are additional protections overlaid over 143 that that both police and fire in Fort Worth have as well. So um, but to default back to civil service in general, we'll talk about those other things later. If we have time, y'all are just like. Please God, spare me no. But um, no, but for civil service, the thing is is that the chief writes up the notice and you have to have like this perfect notice. You can't amend the notice and you give it to them, and they have 10 days to file an appeal. And they decide if they appeal it to the commission, which is that's what the law was first enacted, right? That that had a body of three citizens appointed by your chief executive to just kind of make sure that everything was on the up and up, and you know, my second favorite F-word, fair. Um, that uh, was, you know, make sure everything's fair on the up and up, uh, everything's been complied with. And then, um, and then they would make that decision. And so you had the community, you still had community control, if you will, over those kinds of things. And you did, you had someone else grade in your paper, but it was also people that had been appointed by your council, confirmed by your council, so it was all local control. Then in 1983, they did some overhauls to civil service. Chiefs got to appoint their number twos, their assistant chiefs, in exchange for this independent hearing examiner appeal route. And the challenge with that is you have someone coming in who has experience in private uh, collective bargaining sector relations, and they know public, but they don't live here. They don't live in the community. They don't have to live necessarily with the consequences of their decisions. And so, uh, at the same time, you find a you you make every effort on both sides. Both the employees' attorneys and the city's attorneys are always trying to find someone who's neutral and qualified to make that decision. But that person comes in, they don't know anything about it. They make a deci- They hear all the evidence, and then they make a decision, and then they get back on a plane and and, and leave. And um, that is um, that's been the that's been the bigger concern that you see a lot of people when they criticize civil service is. Oh, this hearing examiner put him back to work, but it's also incumbent on the chiefs to make sure that their actions are taken are reasonable under the circumstances that they've that the, that the investigations prove what happens. Because another thing that happens with civil service and non-service police, non-civil service police and fire is this another pr- uh, provision in the government code that requires a signed written complaint of uh, misconduct must be served to police and firefighters. Uh, within a reasonable time when the investigation starts. And that's in the Texas government code applies to all police and all fire in the state of Texas. And so that's a procedural due process, right? And there's been a litigation about that as well. So that applies. And then for all, all police and fire, then you've got civil service for the cities that have adopted it.
1: And you mentioned meet and confer and collective bargaining, bargaining, but you said the NLRA doesn't really apply. So, how do you have collective bargaining in uh, a municipality?
0: It's uh, under 174 of the Texas local government code. And so the citizens voted in and um, it is for police and fire, no population limits. So you've got really, you have really some really small cities that have collective bargaining and Mm. it, is an attempt by the Texas legislature to adopt the federal case law regarding to, you have no right to strike, no right to engage in work stoppage. So they've prohibited that, for example. But the duty to negotiate in good faith and what happens if you're unable to reach an agreement, those types of things um, all come into play. And you have to go to the table, negotiating table, and those meetings are open to the public, although the public seemingly has little interest in Hearing what goes on in those negotiations—it's an open meeting, has to be posted. So you got the association and you got the city folks negotiating about the terms of agreement and of their work hours, assignment, retirement, discipline, uh, all 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 facets of the employment related uh, uh, hours, uh, hours, work conditions of. Working conditions, hours, and something else. It's in the statute, though. It's in 174. You're supposed to have some... You have to negotiate um, those those aspects of it. Those are mandatory subject of bargaining.
1: And so I can see... I mean, it would seem like at first blush, the city has all the power if they can't go on strike, but non-union organization like the firefighters Union Association or the police Association I guess they've got a lot of political clout and they've got a bully pulpit that the community listens to is that primarily where their their bargaining strength comes from or because I can't I'm trying to figure out why why the city just doesn't say hey this is what we're gonna do
0: well because uh, I think you've I definitely identified it it's the political clout I remember when Fort Worth I was living in Fort Worth when they adopted 174 they were like no new taxes support retired firefighters vote 174 and I'm thinking because I knew I was like they they get retirement anyway right you know so none of that made sense but people are like I like firefighters I'm gonna vote 174 and so the associations are what what happens is is that you can't as an individual engage in a lot of political activity but through your association you can can uh, give donations and all of those things. And so they uh, they have a lot of visibility uh, and political support, and they give a lot of campaign contributions. Their opinions on who they support for office are, are noted. Um, the Texas Supreme Court has noted that police and fire associations regularly avail themselves of the legislature and its, you know, other jurisdictions within. So, so it's really, it's a matter of, you know, you have to, for example, San Antonio had a referendum just this last election about uh, rescinding collective bargaining. And so several, well, at least one news agency interviewed me about it. That the issue was to revoke collective bargaining and or um, that was it. That was the referendum. And so people were like, we're tired of this. We think civil service is horrible because they a lot of public outcry was relating to one case where a police officer had given a homeless man a sandwich filled with feces. I don't know if y'all heard about that. And yeah, yeah. And um, so the hearing examiner put him back to work and everybody was just like, what? Well, and and so there's factors, you know, like, was it outside the 180 days? You know, I don't represent San Antonio. I didn't know, but that was caused a lot of furor, right? They were like, how can you do this? Except that also the issue is, is that only through collective bargaining can you fix the 180-day rule, right? Because if you have a collective bargaining, if you have adopted collective bargaining, you can go in and the parties can agree to preempt any provision of law related to 141, 142, 143, those, those laws that apply to police and fire, and they can agree to preempt those so they can make it better with collective bargaining. So that's the upside for a city, too. Like, for example, if a city wants to hire people who are over that age max, then you can agree to do that. If you want to have different ways to promote people, alternate processes, you can do that. It's um, So that's the upside of those things. So, you know, I do think that meet and confer is is different in that meet and confer, the gover- neither party has the affirmative obligation to negotiate in good faith which is a term of art. But, uh, and you don't have to reach an agreement with meet and confer. You know, you can opt in. You, there's different ways of opting in. Um, with, with collective bargaining, it's voted in, and you're stuck with it until it's voted out, if it's voted out. Uh, civil service, it's voted, I think it's 5 or 10% of the people who voted in the last election can put it on the ballot, but it takes ten percent of all qualified voters in the in that entity to rescind it so it's like the hotel california
1: of, oh, check you know, out. right but you yep. can never leave yeah but you can never leave okay see
0: all my little sayings there um what else my no, i just i feel like really, i'm just scattered all over the place awesome. here no that's well,
1: uh i'm my brain's exploding well, that's, uh, and that's all the time we've got. So I really appreciate <laughs> you. Uh, well, I hope
0: you edited appropriately, Mike, for your listeners. Thank you for your patience. But it's been my privilege to meet with you and, and talk about this. It's obvious. I, I don't always realize I have such a passion for it. But whatever do I do, you can't shut me up. So thank you.
1: Never would want to. Oh. Thanks again, Julie. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at GoodMorningHR.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.